Hello and welcome to the first episode of New Model Advisors podcast. This is Jack Gilbert here, Senior Reporter at NMA. In this episode, we'll be chatting about everyone's favourite subjects, St James's Place, and also discussing the pensions cold calling ban. And we have special guest in the studio, ex-pensions hack, now Senior Analyst at AJ Bell, Tom Selby. Tom, please you can come and join in. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, the pension cold calling ban has been a long time in the making. It all started with IFA Darren Cook, uh, who was enraged by a panorama documentary on pension scams, took matters into his own hands, started a petition to get cold, pension cold calling ban. Um, now, that petition was first picked up by New Model Advisor. It received a lot of uh, press coverage and over 7,000 signatures, and in the end prompted then-Chancellor Philip Hammond to announce a ban at last year's autumn statement. What followed was a consultation earlier this year, and now we've had the Treasury response to the consultation. But we could have had things a lot sooner. Um, we could have had things a lot sooner. Nothing's actually happened yet, I suppose, is um, the most important thing to say. So, as you said, we had a consultation back in um, back in November where the government said it was going to do a certain number of things to, to stop pension scams, including, um, including banning cold calling. What we've got now is an update from the government saying that we are going to do something at some point, but I don't think, I'm, I'm not confident, I'm sure Darren Cook and others aren't confident yet that we've actually got to anywhere in particular. Um, and in terms of the reasons why it's, why it's taken so long, um, I mean, you'll, you'll remember in the initial stages of the, of the campaign, there was resistance from certain government ministers. Um, I think there was, there, was, there was a bit of a case of the people making the perfect the enemy of the good. So you had people saying, this won't stop scams altogether but what we'll do is we'll and because it won't stop scams altogether we don't think it's worth our time and energy to do it eventually because of the work of you guys and others and Darren Cook in particular in the industry um, that started to shift and we got to a point where there was it felt like an unstoppable momentum getting to where uh, to where we wanted to get to obviously we had a general election <laughs> during that period as well we had, had a referendum an EU referendum vote as well there was a lot of stuff going on which has meant that it's been delayed so that got us through to November last year um, felt like we were making a lot of progress felt like it was almost going to be a done deal and then um, general election happened again another spanner in the works and it just seems to be at the moment a case of everything that could possibly go wrong in terms of getting the timing of this getting this thing off the ground has happened. Yeah, so I mean, the consultation response is out. Mm. Um, seems like the government is is pretty much um, it's going to do what it said in its initial consultation. And I mean, with that, there was not only a ban on on, on cold calling, but also um, uh, restrictions on the statutory right to transfer into these um, suspicious-looking mm. pension schemes, um, and also making it harder to set up schemes, particularly targeting. Um, sab- setting up uh, SAS uh, yeah. SAS schemes. Um, so, were you pleased to see them go beyond? So, yeah, see, I think certainly. Um, so, the, in terms of where they've gone, they've gone beyond in the latest announcements. So that's um, the extension of the cold calling ban to other electronic forms of communication. So, um, talking about emails and text messages, that makes that makes sense. I think cold calling is the area of the biggest concern. That's where people generally do get targeted. It's hard, harder to. Just it, from a kind of human perspective, it's harder to put down the phone to someone than it is to ignore a text message and an email. But that was a potential loophole, so it was good that um, good that they closed that. In terms of the other proposals, um, the um, the restriction on the right to transfer seems like um, a sensible a sensible move. I think before there, were, there was obviously concern around the Royal London case um, and uh, and whether or not providers would be able to restrict transfers to a suspicious scheme. 
um, where there was no evidence of a genuine employment link there. So the government said that it's going to come forward and say there has to be a genuine employment link um, before, uh, before you allow a transfer. So that's good. It should allow providers to provide better protection for people, which is important. Um, in terms of SASs, clearly SASs, ADFL offers SASs, I should say that. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it, it's a structure that's clearly been abused by scammers. And it's actually important not just... Um, not just, I think it's important for advisors, it's important for providers like us as well that the reputation of SASIS doesn't get completely trashed just because the structure's been abused by scammers. I think uh, Michelle Cracknell said that they were, SASIS were rife for scams a few... And, 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 and I think it's, and it's, and it's, hard, it's hard to argue that, you know, the checks that have, that have been placed in terms of setting them up haven't been good enough. And I think the, um, the measure that was, that was announced that was effectively stops... Um, stops people setting up shell schemes. So now they're saying you're going to have to have an active company that's actually doing stuff in order to set up a scheme before you could just set up, set up a company, do nothing, set up a scheme and then use that as a vehicle for scams. Yeah, I mean, the um, impression I got from it, though, was that they were very much looking at the, um, the, the issues kind of now or even a couple of years ago because I think with scammers you had, you know, first there were SIPs, mm. then there were SASs. Yeah. Um, now I think you know the, the FCA have come out and said earlier this year that discretionary fund managers are kind of the new home for these these next evolution of scams. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think it's a bit kind of nearsighted of the Treasury to to look at just SASs and and these schemes rather than other potential? I think yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think um, I think it's got to be there's got it's got to be a kind of two track process. So you've got you, know, you can't you can't ignore the stuff that's been abused now, and I think you've got to tackle that head on. And, I mean, that's one of the one of the, the disappointing facts about the fact that we don't have um, a set timetable now. We don't have a specific set of things that are going to be done because, like you say, I think you could be more ambitious in what you do. You could be more ambitious in look, looking not just at the stuff now, but the potential stuff that's going to happen in the future. I know that's what you know, Project Bloom's been set up. That's that's going to be that should should be looking at the ways that these um, these scams morph and evolve. Similarly, the industry. Um, the industry, you know, providers like us and, other, and others build up intelligence um, around the way that scams are working and what's going on and things like that. But it's, it's I think, I think that the biggest danger with where we've got to now is, um, is that it will be seen as, as you say, dealing with today's problems will be seen as the end of the story. And it, shouldn't, it, it, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but this has to be the start of a fight back against scams because it's, 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 it's taken too long for this to happen in the first place. Um, and now that it's happened, we need to. We, I mean, I, f- I almost feel like we need to get the momentum back again because it's been lost a little bit, and the pressure needs to be kept on government because, like you say, these the scammers aren't going to stop just because there's a few barriers put in the way. Yeah, and I mean, just looking at the the consultation. So I think they they said that it was going to be the information commissioner's office, the yeah. ICO, yeah. who were going to regulate the ban on cold calling itself. Um, they're a body. We we don't have a huge amount of um, mm. of background from 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 pension scams yeah. i mean do you think they're equipped to to deal with this uh good question um i, I well, clearly first of all the ico is going to be uh, part of the process as you say they're they're focused purely on the on the cold calling bit you've got the fca they're dealing with pension fraud you've got the pensions regulator dealing with pension fraud of course you've got the police dealing with pension fraud as well so you've got it's, it's, it's clearly a, a kind of cross agency cross regulatory um approach to, de- to dealing with this but um i think it's it's important that the ICOs seem to have teeth. Um, so clearly, the ICO had a set of things that it had to do before. Um, adding pensions, cold calling to the stuff it has to do um, is going to drain more resources. From it. It's going to need extra people and presumably extra money to do that. Now, whether 
that money is going to be forthcoming from the government is um, is another question. I think from the ICO's point of view, um, it'll be looking to to claim some sort of scalp early on. You'd be wanting you'd be wanting to see once once they're given these powers and once this all this stuff goes into place, um, they'd want they'd want to take action against someone to close a call centre to stop some cold coin to issue a fine. Just and then obviously get that in the press just to get the message out to anyone who thinks that they don't have teeth that they don't have the resource. Dawn raids banging on the exactly. door. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. With you know Boris Johnson in the background, <laughs> whoever whoever the mayor, mayor happens to be at the time. Um, and with the consultation itself, I mean, w- what are the other potential loopholes or issues you, you notice? I mean, the, there's the, the clear one, which um, I think the whole the whole industry was aware of for this entire process, um, was that call centres would go overseas. I think in um, one of the documentaries you referred to, I think it's the Panorama documentary, you had you know you've, you've, you, had, you had people being secretly recorded saying that we're going to move people overseas when this ban comes in. Um, anyway, clearly that part of it's not perfect, and um, I think you'd hope to see the government and regulators working with countries where they see lots of scam activity going on. Clearly, that's more difficult than regulating your own country. It's going to be potentially very complicated if people have got different standards and stuff like that, but. You do need. You, it, it, it's inevitable. You do need to try to take an international approach to this stuff um, as much as you can. Um, I've, I'm, I'm still a little concerned about um, the uh, the exclusion of um, of investments from the coal calling ban. So um, I've still I've, I, I, I've I've always been open to somebody explaining to me why um, a member of the public would need to be cold called about investments um, if there is. A reason, then that, that that is going to particularly damage a business model and, and more importantly damage end consumer outcomes. Then, um, then fine. But I've not heard that reason yet. And, and the consultation didn't mention. So the, cons- the consultation specifically talks about people. So people being encouraged to transfer out of their pension and into an investment that turns out to be fraudulent or, or whatever it may be. But. You could you could imagine a scenario where somebody just calls about the investment because clearly most people have a pension, so it'll depend how tightly the final rulings are worded and things like that. But you could imagine a scenario where somebody would call about something about just about about, about an investment that they're offering and not mention the pension that someone's got, but just say, oh, by the way, you know that these rules allow you to take your money out from age fifty-five, which they do, um, and then. That way, if, if all they do is talk about their investment and someone decides to invest their pension in it and then they lose all the money, that's still a bad consumer outcome. So I think it, that, that, that to me seems like an obvious way potentially around the ban, which I don't see any reason why that should exist. Yeah. So you don't think we're going to see an, a sudden just end to pension scams? You don't think this is going to be absolutely not? I mean, there's, there's um, I mean, even to be honest, you can you can rule, um, you can set the the legislation and the, and the rulings as as tightly as you want. Um, ultimately, most of the people doing this stuff are criminals. They're people who are out there to break the law. You know, you make uh, you make you know make you know, steal steal a Mars bar from a corner shops illegal, but people will still still do it because. You know, not, not everybody cares about the law or they think the rewards from breaking the law, as, as with the case with pensions, clearly post-pension freedom is a pot of money you know, at the end of, um, at the, end of the rainbow, rainbow for some of these scammers is so huge that the threat of going to jail or the threat of being fined or whatever is worth the risk. We might see some just you know, increasing that pot as well, you know, increasing commissions because of the risk, yeah. because of the possibility of fines. Yeah. They could just say we're going to give you 50% commission rather than... Ten percent. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think. You know, I think some of the, the the amounts of money that are sliced off these pots anyway are pretty um, 
are pretty huge. So uh, I, th I, think, I think they'll still, regardless of the barriers that are put in the way of, of scammers and fraudsters, there's still enough incentive for them to make enough money out of it for a lot of them to do it. But that's not to say that this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's important that you put in, in place as many hurdles as you can to these people. And even if it only puts off, I don't know, say two or three companies, who, two or three individuals who may have become scammers, who no longer become scammers, you're potentially talking about hundreds, thousands of, people's, of people who aren't going to be targeted by that person who might just have a better chance of not losing all the retirement savings. So to me, it seems obviously worth it. Tom, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. Moving on, uh, SJP, a company our readers, you guys all love to hate. And one of the summer's biggest scoops came from Elliot Smith, a new model advisor, reporter, um, who revealed in August where the money goes from SJP's annual management fees and the shocking difference between how much SJP charges external fund managers and how much SJP gets. Um, so, Elliot, where did the story come from? Um, it initially came from, uh, it was noticed by uh, Dan Grote on our money team, you just noticed one uh, particular fund, which was uh, Neil Woodford's fund for SJP, um, and noticed that there was a sort of, 20 million discrepancy between what SJP earned in fund charges across the year and what Woodford himself did. Um, so from there, um, I, I sort of decided to uh, dedicate a fair bit of time to digging through all of their all of their funds and, and unit trusts uh, just to to try and establish kind of whether that was an anomaly or if there was uh, this discrepancy was common, um, and to try and sort of aggregate the the sum total of what, what they made in comparison to what they paid the external fund managers. And was it a one-off or was this something that was across the board? Um, it, it turned out to be, um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite a, a common trend and uh, so we managed to speak to, to SJP about it and get their sort of side of, of what all of those fund charges kind of pay for um, and sort of how they integrate it into their, their value proposition essentially. Um, but it was, it was quite enlightening to see I mean, it was all publicly available information, but it hadn't really been dug into and aggregated and sort of quantified in, in that way yet. So, um, yeah, we sort of took it upon ourselves to do that. And I mean, are, is this, uh, are they unique in how they do this or is this? Yeah, I think that SJP's model um, sort of is, is very unique within the market in the sense of um, they use external fund managers uh, rather than their own in-house ones. Um, they have sort of a number of reasons for doing that. Um, the primary one is that they, they can replace them very easily um, and sort of at the drop of a hat if, uh, if there's sort of underperformance. Um, and you see that in, in the recent uh, financial statements for the various funds, there are quite a few instances of certain um, asset managers being replaced um, at the end of the year or in the half year. So, Elliot, what does the story really tell us about the SJP model? So, the, the key factual point to come out of it is that SJP, on average, are making about four times as much um, in fund charges as the, the asset managers they're using. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean um, it's a bad thing. Obviously, we're not criticising anybody for, for making a profit, and, and indeed, this is SJP's most profitable area. Um, the issue is that their clients often say they, uh, they do provide value for money, but um, the question is whether those clients actually know what is going into all these, these bundle charges that they're, they're paying for. Um, 
these SJP funds can only be accessed by going through SJP's advice process, which facilitates a, a bundled charge. Um, and these things are, are it's quite an obscure process. Um, now, this discrepancy between SJP's earnings and the asset manager's earnings show that they are using their negotiating power uh, to, to facilitate lower um, fund management charges. Whether that is now making its way through to the client is the key question, um, because the, obviously the, the main thing is that they could be um, potentially lowering that margin um, and in order to sort of lower the overall cost to consumers and to investors. Um, which at the moment doesn't seem to be happening. Um, and I mean, the piece itself, I imagine this is not going not was, not was, wasn't a straightforward one that was kind of slapped on, you know, there and then on the day. No. How long did it take you to do? Um, it, it rumbled on for a few weeks. Um, the, the process of aggregating the data was pretty sort of two, two full days work. Um, just that was just for myself. But then um, from sort of writing the piece, we then sort of ended up spotting new and interesting bits within the financial statements when we were just, you know, we'd go just to check a certain figure and find something new that we thought was relevant and to pursue. So it ended up taking on quite a different format and several incarnations before we did get around to publishing it. But um, yeah, it seems to have been quite well received, which is a really Yeah, what, yeah. Was the, what was the reaction like, comments-wise and Twitter? Um, and It was... Uh, the. Well, I was the very first comment was along the lines of um, no S Sherlock, <laughs> but thankfully they picked up from there, uh, <laughs> and uh, and we did we ended up with uh, it's around eighty comments on the website and a lot of circulation. I think it's had over uh, over two thousand hits so far on the uh, ten thousand sorry two thousand uh, over ten thousand hits on the website, and um, the a lot of the comments and feedback that we've had is that. No, it was quite a unique and insightful piece of um, investigative reporting, and I would hope that it won't be the the end of uh, this little saga. <laughs> no, I, I can't imagine we're going to see an end of SJP in our headlines and in our the trade media's headlines anytime soon. So, thank you very much, Elliot. Uh, I'm Jack Gilbert, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>